0: Welcome back to our summer series from the University of Notre Dame's International Security Center. I'm Beth Grizzoli, and with us today, just back from Washington, is Professor Eugene Golt. He works primarily at the intersection of national security and economic policy, defense management, and U.S. grand strategy. So Professor, you worked at the Pentagon as a senior advisor in the area of weapons acquisition. Let's drill down into some of those specific changes in military technology in recent years or changes that are emerging that might affect uh, military affairs in the next few years.
1: Pleasure to be talking to you, Beth. And, and yes, I did, I did work on a bunch of these uh, issues uh, in the Pentagon a few years ago and then have come back to academia, and I'm uh, uh, still thinking about that in a more um, academic and general public uh, kind of way as opposed to the day-to-day working uh, on investing in technology in the government. Um, So the big thing, the big picture thing that's been happening is uh, something everyone is familiar with, the kind of electronics and information revolution. And uh, that has had an effect on many weapons technologies because they're built up from lots of Uh, what used to be super high-end, super expensive electronics uh, that now, as we know, are much faster and more capable and cheaper. I mean, it used to take a a huge room full of million-dollar computers to do fairly simple calculations, and now we can do that on something that's so small and cheap that we're perfectly comfortable with blowing it up after one use. And so we put that in a missile Instead of putting it back home and, and that's affected countries all around the world in terms of their capability for building weapon systems with pretty advanced kind of precision capabilities or or uh, uh, capabilities to adapt uh, to different uses because they can take advantage of the new technologies
0: well it's interesting that you say that um, because it, last episode we discussed China a bit with Mike Dash and um, He spoke about China as being, you know, one of the the closest peers to the U.S. with regard to global power. Now, China is a good example of a country that has applied all these dramatic price reductions to electronics, as you say, and to deploy many new missiles and other systems in in a so-called anti-access area denial military capability. So that can make it hard for the United States military to operate in the Western Pacific. Tell us what exactly is anti-access area denial capability? It's often referred to as A2AD. Um, and what is the United States doing about it?
1: Sure. Um, so <clears throat> I guess to start from the beginning, we, we were talking a little bit about uh, electronics being applied in military technology. And, <clears throat> and China is certainly one country that has uh, uh, taken advantage of the electronics revolution. So. In, Twenty-ish years ago, uh, the Chinese government consciously made a decision to change their approach to military affairs, to um, <clears throat> to to adapt to what they called informationalized conditions, uh, which is you know an awkward phrase in English. Uh, I don't speak Chinese, but I'm guessing it's a little smoother uh, in Chinese. But but they've really been focusing on taking advantage of um, of. Uh, new semiconductors, new sensors to improve the, the accuracy and uh, reduce the cost of a lot of weapon systems like anti-ship cruise missiles uh, or they've been working on a, a, a maybe more advanced technology that uh, anti-ship ballistic missiles which um, the United States experimented with many years ago and decided was not a great investment. We stopped but the Chinese have been continuing to work on this. So, in some ways, they're working on cutting-edge electronics capabilities that might make it hard for US ships to sail close to China. And that's what the anti-access area denial capability is about. So, that's just a phrase that came out of US Navy circles originally, and again, it's for the general public, it's a little bit of a mouthful, but we all know the Pentagon's full of jargon, right? I mean, that's what they like because <clears throat> um, it's convenient when you when you know the lingo, it's it, it's quick and fast. But but any, any access means making it hard to enter an area to gain access to that area, and then area denial means making it hard once you're in that area to keep operating. To make it costly. So so if you stay in the Western Pacific, the longer you stay, if there is an area denial capability, the more. Uh, attrition, the more you might expect to take hits from enemy forces in a real wartime scenario. And so, since the U.S. military strategy for the past um, many, many years, uh, certainly in the post-World War era, has involved the premise that the U.S. military will approach other countries, will get very close to them, will approach their coast and project power into other countries, if those countries develop an anti-access area denial capability, they make it costly for the United States to approach close to them, then that makes it more costly for the United States to do what we say we want to do under our uh, strategy. And by cost, I I really mean two things. The first is we have to invest to develop countermeasures to their system. So if they have a better missile that might threaten our ship, we have to develop better anti-missile defenses for our ships. That's a cost for us. And then cost also if we ever did find ourselves in this terrible situation where we were having a military conflict, the kinds of costs we're talking about is we would suffer more casualties because the other guy's systems are better. And, um, you know, it it doesn't mean China is our enemy. It doesn't mean that China is a potential adversary out there in the world that we have to think about and and counter their ability to counter us
0: so does it make it um i this is a bad term but almost to a degree somewhat fruitless to go and uh devote naval ships etc to these coasts where we we are really sort of out outwitted technologically
1: well so uh, <coughs> outwitted technologically is a is a bit of a leap i would say so that's a, that's uh going too far so um In all of military affairs, for centuries, there's a race between different sides, between developing measures that you can take to achieve your military ends, and the other side developing countermeasures, and then you develop counter-countermeasures, and you just go back and forth, and so... Fruitless, as I said. (laughs) Well, but it's not fruitless, because at each level, once you counter the other guy's measures, you can do what you want for a while until they develop a counter countermeasure, sure. and then you have to do a counter counter countermeasure, right? It goes, it's back and forth. And so the United States is spending a lot. So we spend ballpark figures, $80 billion a year on military research and development in the United States. And we've been doing that in you know, inflation adjusted dollars and it varies a little from year to year, but basically we've been doing that for 70 years. We've been spending on the order of $80 billion a year. $80 billion a year is more than all but two or three countries in the world spend on their entire defense budget. right? So we spend it only on research. <clears throat> they spend it on paying their personnel salaries, on the food and the oil that they use, on, on the research that they're doing, on buying new weapons, all that. So we spend a fortune compared to everybody else. But we get something for that spending. Right. And so in the past few years of that 80 billion dollars, a big chunk of it has been focused on developing technologies to counter anti-access area denial capabilities. And we're not bad at it. It's just really costly. And if the United States thinks it's worth it, that we get some benefit from being able to sail close to China or being able to threaten to attack China or something like that then it could be worth spending however much money we spend on that, $50 billion a year by the time you figure in some procurement and all of that kind of stuff. Um, To me, that's a lot of money, and I don't know why we want to pick a fight with China, so I'm not sure we need to do it, but it's not fruitless, it's just expensive.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, this is this is an area you have quite a bit of experience in, too, in, in weapons acquisition. So let's talk a little bit more about this mm. and the costs and the economic impact. Um, so if the U.S. needs to buy new technology to combat rising Chinese capabilities, don't we have a problem um, by the mere fact that the American people feel our defense acquisition system is broken? Mm. Um, we are often the, the butt of a lot of jokes and the stereotype of inefficiency. We hear of the $400 hammers and the $1,200 toilet seats and things like that. Sure. Um, you know, Senator John McCain and Representative Mac Thornberry from the Armed Services Committee have pushed for acquisition reform in the past couple of years. Are we getting anywhere? Is any of that reform working in your opinion?
1: It's a, a really good question. So. Um, Uh, My view on this is that uh, buying really high-end technologically sophisticated military capability is expensive. It just is. There's no magic. Oh, if we just change the system, fix the wiring diagram of the military organizations, whatever, it's going to be cheap. It's not going to be cheap. It's expensive because we're trying to build things no one's ever built before we're trying to to counter smart ideas that other people have. You can't get out of that fact. Um, in fact, I think the U S acquisition system is pretty good. It works pretty well. It's not perfect. It's good that you have people taking a hard look all the time and and working to try to make things better, but wholesale reforms, shaking things up causes a lot of program instability. It, It confuses people about what the priorities are in their jobs. It makes it hard to keep, um, uh, you know chugging along doing the work that we need to do all the time because you're so worried about the process that you lose sight of some of the, the goals, the products that you might want. Um, I mean we have to remember, the United States spends a lot of money, and we've built a huge base of technology. We've built over decades, some of the old technology from fifty years ago obviously isn't very relevant anymore but developing it contributed to our base of technological capability that we've built on and built. It's like the foundation, right? And, and um, we get a lot for this. We have the best military systems in the world. Nobody out there, if they had all the money and had the right um, military doctrine and all of these things would not want, they wouldn't prefer a Chinese system to an American system or an Iranian system to an American. Everyone would say the United States is the gold standard. If they, they've got the good stuff. And, and thinking about, oh, the $400 hammer, I mean, those kinds of, um, of tales are usually rooted in a point of truth but uh, a slight misunderstanding of how costs are accounted for, right? So a lot of those have to do with, you know, how overhead costs are allocated to individual items or something like that. There's a reason why it looks like there's a $400 hammer, even though it's not sure. really a $400 hammer. And, and um, it's just like all the other big projects that happen in, in our lives. When there's a cost overrun on an American military system, they found something that had a certain estimate of the cost, thinking the project was gonna look a certain way. And when they got into it, they discovered they needed to do some extra work. And so they, they, they made a good faith effort a lot of the time. Occasionally they didn't, but mostly they did. It costs a little more, but then they worked till they got it right. It's, it's like when you're doing a renovation on your house and everyone knows, every house renovation runs off schedule and over budget, and it runs over budget because when you open up the wall to fix one thing, you find out, oh my god, I need new wiring, and then you got to work on that too. It's not, you're getting something for the extra money, you're getting wiring so your house won't burn down. And that's kind of the way a lot of these programs are, like all projects work over budget. The question is, do you get something good at the end, the United States gets military capability at the end.
0: Do you think we're hit economically because of changes in priorities? I mean, sometimes every four years or even more often, how much of an effect do you think that has had on um, funding gets cut so the progress that's been made gets wasted. gets wasted? Or to go and a few years later pick it back up, you have to start from scratch almost or at least really um, revise? and
1: Take a step back. Yeah, that happens. That definitely happens. Um, I mean, so one, one thing at, at, the, at a big scale, sk- like you can look at that at the small detail level of a particular weapons program or something like that, but you could also look at a, at, a, at a bigger level. So, you know, the U.S. military, for good reason, because of the way the strategic, the world evolved, we took a 15-year detour into the close fight and counterinsurgency warfare and certain military systems, counter IED systems, these kinds of things, um, because we went to Afghanistan, we went to Iraq. Um, That took attention away and um, diverted resources, focus, some of the best scientists, all of these things away from some of the systems that we look at now and we say, oh, really we wanna focus on stealth, or we want to focus on precision, or better communications at a strategic level as opposed to the tactical communications that mattered in Iraq. Um, So yeah, those big priority shifts, uh, yeah, they set you back. Like, we could have been further along on some of the counter A2AD things if they had gotten all the attention in the last 15 years. Instead, they got some attention, right? And... If they've had all the attention you know, we, you know we'd be in better shape in that sense but we'd be in worse shape or we would have been in worse shape in Iraq
0: uh, okay so here's an idea the United States is is very good at high-level technology we, yes. we have Apple and Google and um, yeah. Tesla and Amazon and so I'm sure this idea has been considered why aren't these very successful companies coming up with innovative ideas that can be applied
1: for defense? Uh, You know, it's a really good question. And um, uh, people have been excited about the prospect of using commercial technology in military systems for many, many years. There have been, again, a series of efforts over the years to really incorporate that technology. Um, Because it is so impressive, right? Like if you go, if you're a, a, in the leadership of the Pentagon, or you're a, a general, and whether for work or for pleasure, you fly around the world. You go through an airport, and you see, um, you know, all of the electronic stuff that's for sale in the airport. That's so cool. And you're like, why can't I get some of that? I want, I want. Everything you want that is... sharper image exactly. massage chair, don't you? That's it. That's exactly it. And and um, the the thing is. Um, uh, the Pentagon at spending $80 billion a year on research or spending another $120, $130 billion a year on procurement, on buying systems, um, just isn't that big and exciting a market. And it's a market that's a pain in the neck because um, you have to deal with security classification and government accounting systems and all of these things which, which are actually completely appropriate to have Right? We can't just wish away all of the uh, oversight apparatus that you know tries to make sure government is is not corrupt or that government is taking account of, of the social concerns that Americans have or you know uh, we like small business uh, we we are concerned about diversity. There's a whole set of things that come with the government. You can't just pretend that's not there. And so if you're Tesla or Uber or Google, and you're talking about, well, I could sell one or 2% of my revenue. I could grow my revenue by one or 2% by selling directly to the DOD in exchange for having to customize a lot of technology, which I you know, otherwise wouldn't have to do in exchange for dealing with a different accounting system and a different pace of, of getting paid, right? The government works on an annual budget. And it's, approval it's, it's an approval process. approval process, all of these things. Google's just gonna say, forget about it. I'm not doing that. And, but but that doesn't mean it's hopeless. Like there's no relationship between commercial technology and the, and, and the U.S. military system because, um, you know, if uh, uh, U.S. electronics companies develop a great new semiconductor Uh, and um, gallium arsenide semiconductors or something like that, a new technology because we're all sort of familiar with, well, what about silicon chips? Well, there are different kinds of things and those have different applications technologically. Well, if those are developed, Lockheed or Boeing or Raytheon, the traditional uh, defense corporations, companies, the major companies that sell to the Department of Defense can see that commercial technology and buy it as a subcontract so so that you know national instruments or whatever that commercial technology supplier never has to work directly with the u.s government they sell on a commercial basis to lockheed and then lockheed's job what is lockheed's expertise it's understanding what customization does the military need what does the military want how do i deal with all the military regulations and lockheed kind of acts as a broker making that connection and so really, the U.S. government's not cut off from Tesla um, or from the battery supplier that supplies to Tesla and also might supply to a U.S. government system. It's just the government doesn't need to buy directly from Tesla. And of course, in that case, they do buy directly from Elon Musk and SpaceX, right? He has this other business launching satellites. But um, but but the point is, there's, there's lots of Of fluid back and forth below the surface that really does give us access to, you know, you you don't need Apple to make a tank, right? Apple is really good at customer interfaces and displays and all of those kinds of things, mostly for our commercial consumer benefit, what I want to use on my smartphone, right? But, But if Apple help someone develop a great display technology, they can sell that display technology also to Lockheed, and then it can turn up in an airplane. And right, right. That works works well.
0: Okay, so speaking of Apple, mm. um, let's talk about the globalization of mm. technology for consumer goods. You You go to Cuba right now, and in the streets you'll see occasionally A pocket of a mass of people standing there and they're all on a cell phone because there's a Wi-Fi hotspot there. Mm. And um, I mean, you you see iPhones everywhere in the world now. So does this globalization of technology apply to military technology? Um, You know, does this mean China and other countries are going to have similar access to the latest military capabilities? Um, And does it mean countries like China who have Uh, A control over certain areas of high technology? Do they have leverage over us
1: because of this? We need that technology. It's a really good question. Globalization is is one of the defining features of the modern world and it's been um, tremendously beneficial on balance. It's not so good for some people, it's great good for others. It creates change, lots of change in the world as we know it. Uh, I haven't been to Cuba that sounds uh, uh, like a great story of people getting together and connecting to the world, I, I, I like the sound of that. Um, but um, but I think, uh, and there is a certain amount of globalization of military technology, as we were, as we were talking about before. There is a supply chain where people buy components, and uh, certain countries of the world have actually really developed expertise in either developing military components or in improving systems in 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 bolting on or applique new high-tech things that they might get using commercial technology onto an existing weapon system to upgrade that weapon system Uh, and that happens around the world or or you think about you know the IED threat in Iraq well you know what were IEDs based on so there was the part that goes boom you know old military specific artillery shells or something like that where they were getting the explosives, but how did they trigger an improvised explosive device? It was a a garage door opener or a cell phone or something that was ubiquitous in the commercial world that was then applied for military use. So so that can happen particularly at the kind of lower levels of military technology. The problem is when you're looking for very high-end sophisticated complex systems. So not just an IED, which is a one-off explosive in one spot, but but a a fighter aircraft or a ship that is really a combination of thousands of different technologies. When you're trying to just cobble together off-the-shelf internationally available commercial technologies um, uh, or internationally available military technologies, when you're trying to like I want a little bit of this Russian system and a little bit of this, you know, Iranian thing, and I'm going to steal this from the Americans, even though they don't want me to have it and whatever, and I'm going to put it all together. Um, There are, it's hard. The problem is, is called systems integration. It's kind of making those technologies work together. Well, they're in a little bit of a different programming language, or one of them works on a 120 volt standard and the other one's on a 220 volt standard. Like when we you know, travel to Europe and we've got to get a plug adapter to plug in our, our, uh, you know, hairdryer or whatever it is we're looking for. You have all these little incompatibilities that make it really difficult. Even if one piece of technology is out there, only very successful, sophisticated countries that have built up that foundation we were talking about can make the complex systems. And so, you know, even China, which is now spending a lot of money and is more technologically sophisticated than it used to be, you know, really has trouble with complex systems integration. And um, so, no, they're not in the same... They're not on this, just because of globalization, they're not on the same playing field as the United States militarily because they're not working with the same foundation. They're not working with the same uh, overarching suite of technologies that they really understand fundamentally at an intuitive level. Like they're They're trying to cobble things together.
0: It sounds like it sounds like that it's not impossible. It just is more on the time frame of years, Yes. rather than these consumer goods they take off and you know, in a month or two, they're in you know, just spreading like wildfire That's exactly across the right. globe. So well, that makes sense. So, okay, let's talk about some of this um, this high technology. Hmm. The, you published a report for the Council on Foreign Relations. On the potential threat of rare earth elements, right? And rare earths made headlines around 2010 because, again, China has a monopoly on the production of those raw materials that are vital for defense applications, and also for lots of things that would be beneficial in a green economy, things like wind turbines and hybrids and electric cars. Yeah. So, you know, we know China has been manip- manipulative with rare earth markets. Um, for whatever political gain they desire at the time and they they've done this in the past they they placed an embargo on rare earth exports to Japan how much of a threat is that for us and, and what position does that put the US in
1: it's a it's a good question like rare earths are are one high profile product it's, i mean they're 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 just cool so rare, i mean rare earths they're what what are they? They're they're elements on the periodic table, like like every chemistry student in high school has the periodic table up on the wall of their classroom, and the rare earths are right there. There's nothing magic about them, but they're a little hard to 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 get your hands on. I mean, they're all around actually. They're not rare. They're just rare in the ability to find them in uh, concentrations that are commercially plausible to to process or to use, and um, and then it turns out they're like fairy dust. You just put a little bit of rare earths of the right rare earth, combined with some other more mundane, uh, you know, metals, iron or something like that, and you get a powerful magnet, or you get uh, a brightly colored display screen, or you get a really effective sensor um, that might be used in medical imaging, or might also be used in defense applications. I mean, they, they're. they're I mean, they're, they're wonder things. You know, the 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 elements, they're great, um, uh, and so everybody wants these things. Everyone wants access to them, and of course, um, for a while it was the case that China produced nearly all of them in the world, and um, and so that bred fear, it made other countries worried that you know China could squeeze on all these things we care a lot about. Um, But there are limits to your ability to squeeze uh, because people notice, people don't like monopolies. They don't like concentrations of power in the world. And it's not just governments, right? So years before the governments, including the US government, were paying much attention to rare earths, before they were on the headlines, there were people with a little bit of expertise, people who, who, who were in, mineral business or in advanced technology business, they knew about rare earths and they could see this is going to be a growing business area and people will be concerned if they're dependent on any one supplier, maybe especially if that one supplier is China. And so they started investing. They started investing eight or 10 years before the governments were paying intense attention to this, right? It was really just for business reasons. They thought we could make a buck. And so a mine reopened in the United States that lasted only a little while, but it was here because business was naturally reacting to the concentration of power. A mine opened for the first time in Australia that's still open. So China doesn't have a monopoly anymore. There are rare earths now being supplied from Australia. And um, the economy turns out to be quite flexible. And there are, Many different, when, when when China tried to squeeze, other people stepped into the gap, or stockpiles, inventories stepped into the gap, or innovation happened. So you used to use, for example, a lot of, a, of an element called cerium in glass. And so they discovered very quickly, oh, we could do this with 10% as much cerium as we used to do it with. Poof, the problem went away. Cerium is in surplus now, right? So... There's just an an incredible dynamism of people when there's a problem. Sometimes they see it in advance. Sometimes they react, but they work to solve the problem. And, um, uh, the rare earths problem, uh, if, if there ever was one was very ephemeral and, um, uh, you know, today there's a glut in rare earths, not a shortage
0: so you you answered my next question with your reassurance it's It's quite reassuring to talk with you, I must say, on so many issues so at first, it might seem that this would be an argument against this these bigger uh, strategies we've been discussing in in the episodes of um restraint, et cetera mm-hmm. um right it seemed that. This may be an argument against restraint. maybe the United States needs to be in more of a, um, a leadership role and, and take a stand on protecting trade for things like this. but you may have just talked me out of that thought
1: right so that that good I hope so even even before you know focusing on it specifically the, many people wonder if um you know, the United States needs to use its international diplomatic position or its international military position, making alliances around the world to protect access to critical raw materials, rare earth elements, you know, the classic one people talk about is oil, of course. Um, but there are many other things. Or to enable um, markets to flourish, right? Um, uh, people, people understand that it, quite correctly, um, uh, military conflict around the world makes investors nervous, right? They'd rather not um, have their factory in a place where there's a war going on. Um, that's true, um, but uh, it's also true that people find solutions. So maybe the investors who were comfortable in a certain area when it was you know, very low tension and very peaceful don't want it to get tense, don't want there to be an arms race there. Maybe some of them will pull out. But other investors see an opportunity like more risk tolerant investors or more investors that, you know, the oil industry is a good example of, of an industry that it for its whole existence has had a specialty in dealing with political risk, with the risk that there'll be a strike somewhere, or that a government will nationalize part of their company or something like that. They know what to do. They know how to handle that. They factor that into their business calculations. And um, even without the US military, commerce functions, even in very big wars, during World War II, commerce didn't grind to a halt. Some ships were unlucky and got sunk, didn't make you know commercial ships, didn't make it to their destination because they hit a blockade or something like that. Um, But then people buy insurance, people price that in, people figure out because there's a lot of money to be made when people really want to buy stuff. And so um, the economy globally is not managed by governments. This is just a misconception. When people say China trades with the United States, well, China doesn't trade with the United States. Companies trade with each other right? It's not like if we want to buy something from China, we go to the U.S. government, say, would you please negotiate a contract for, you know, cell phones with China, the Chinese government then buys them from a Chinese company and gives them to the U.S. government who gives them to Americans. Like, that's not how it works. Like, companies just deal with each other, and the balance of trade, or not balance in that case, but the, but the results of trade, or the economic investment results just emerge, right? There's no control. There's no systems administrator telling people what to do. There is a, a, um, a system that has properties that just come naturally from the micro level decisions of millions and millions of people. And that can cause a certain kind of order, a certain kind of reliability, a certain kind of, we can trust, even if any individual micro-action may not come to fruition, that because there are millions and millions of them, the overall system will keep working. And you don't need an aggressive military. People don't want to buy Coca-Cola because the U.S. military is running around the world providing security. People want to buy Coca-Cola because they think it tastes good. right? And they're still going to do that, whether the military is there or not. And so we don't we don't need an aggressive grand strategy. We can have restraint, and still have globalization work.
0: I love the term in itself, grand strategy.
1: Let's let's
0: conclude our time um, today, talking a little bit about what's what's on the top of your mind. You just got back from Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. What's what's top of mind for you um, in your field with all your experience, and as you move forward uh, to a new academic session, you know you're going to. Pass these ideas on to students etc. What's top of mind for you on the current administration and just the the fields that relate to your expertise?
1: Sure I mean well there's as there always is in Washington there's lots going on most of which is sort of below the surface of the headlines we see all the time about you know Russia hacking the election or you know the US and China coming to loggerheads over a a North Korean missile launch or there's lots of stuff that you see, but then also beneath it, right? Where, where um, uh, there's a new report today from the Pentagon about how they're going to respond to some of those acquisition reform proposals that, that are, um, you know, how they're going to reorganize the Pentagon, or there's investment going on. And uh, President Trump is asking, there might be rare earths in Afghanistan. Should we increase our military presence in Afghanistan to buy rare earths from Afghanistan? These are, you know, the kinds of issues we've been talking about are very much issues on which sometimes it's very high level visible in the newspapers every day. Do we have a problem with China, right? That's Do one we have a problem with Russia?
0: With Russia, exactly.
1: <laughs> and then beneath it, there's constantly all of the issues we've talked about. How much should we invest in technology? What technology should we invest in? Uh, how much should we buy military forces today to... That that prepare us for an Iraq war-like scenario compared to for a potential conflict with China over the South China Sea or something like that. The, these are the decisions, and they're pretty important, pretty consequential decisions, not just for the billions of dollars that are at stake, but but for the you know peace and security of, of Americans. Um, and I mean, I actually think the conversation we've had is a is a is a good roadmap to kind of drilling a little beneath the headlines and thinking about what are the big choices that we should be making, and and you know whether you think um, uh, President Trump is the kind of guy who drills beneath the headlines or not. There's a lot of controversy about the president. Um, uh, there are people in government. Who are doing their best to, you know, pay attention to these issues, and and a lot of the times they're trying to engage with the American people about these issues too. They don't want to make big consequential decisions about the future of the United States without input from the people, whether it's through their elections or through just public discussion and commentary. I mean, this is kind of what think tanks are for in Washington. It's kind of what what um, why people give public speeches and um, you know, trying to develop a view for just American citizens, for educated American citizens, for, for college students, for people who are, who are coming into this uh, um, sort of uh, world of thinking about where the United States as a whole is going as opposed to thinking about where am I going to go to college. Right? That, this is the time when they need to, to, to learn the foundations that where to get engaged, what are the things they're interested in, Um, uh, Do they want to focus on uh, oil or technology or globalization or economic relations with other countries or, you know, how how much do they think the U.S. military should be busy around the world? That's the fundamental strategy question, right? Nobody thinks the U.S. military should be weak. The question is, we're going to have a strong military, but should it be busy? Should it be constantly trying to shape and manipulate world affairs? or should the US military um, uh, be a little less aggressive, a little less uh, domineering uh, in world affairs, and um, uh, maybe allow the United States and the globe to have a little more freedom to develop in their own way?
0: Well, that is an excellent place to conclude today. Um, It's it's been a whole kaleidoscope of possibilities in in this field. Today's conversation has been with Professor Eugene Goltz of the Notre Dame's International Security Center. And he is the author of Buying Military Transformation, Technological Innovation and the Defense Industry, and US Defense Politics, The Origins of Security Policy. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash N-D-I-S-C forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag N-D underscore I-S-C. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under SampleSwap.